0: You know, in my life sometimes, I, I want to be more like Benny. Do you ever feel like that? Benny. I mean, Benny was the best. He was the fastest, the strongest. Benny had the most potential, and he actually lived up to all of the hype. Do you know anybody like this? Benny could have been the cool kid that only hung out with the cool kids, I mean, he, he could have had his way. He could have said, it's my way or the highway. This is what we're going to do. And, and, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. In fact, Benny could have been this sort of self-centered, it's all about me, big jerk. But he wasn't. Instead, Benny was nice. He was invitational. He was inclusive. I mean, he was this kind of guy where, where people just wanted to hang out with him, not because he was so talented, but because he was good. I, I want to be more like Benny in my life. And you know, I just, I just think, as I look out at the world today, I think the world would be a better place if more of us were like Benny. But often, we have this other experience. We're a lot more like Smalls. Do you guys? You know Smalls, right? Smalls, the new kid in the neighborhood. Smalls, the one that's a little bit awkward. Smalls, the one that's on the outside looking in, and he doesn't really know how to connect. And, and, and he just is a fish out of water. And he just wants to connect, and he wants his dad to help him to connect by playing catch with him, teaching him how to play baseball. But, but his stepdad, he doesn't even notice him. He doesn't really feel or have that empathy for him. He doesn't have time for him. And mom insists, you're going to play catch. And so they go out, and it lasts for about one minute. And instead of catching the ball with his glove, he catches it with his face, and he ends up with a stake on his face. And then he's sitting out on his front porch, and he's embarrassed and completely humiliated, and he's just done. He wants to give up. And that's when it just so happens that Benny walks by. Have you had this happen in your life before? Like at just the right time somebody comes by. I mean, you're at your worst, you're ready to be done, you're ready to give up. And along comes Benny and Benny says, "Hey, come and play baseball with my friends, with my team, with my tribe." And Small says, "No. No, I'm I can't do this. I'm done." And and besides, I don't even have a mitt. He shows Benny his mitt, and it's broken. Benny pulls a mitt out of his pocket, throws it at him, and says, no more excuses, let's go. And so he takes him, and he introduces him to the team, and they don't really like him. They don't really want to be any part of this. And Benny stands up and puts all of his coolness on the line, and he takes a risk for Smalls. He stands up to his own tribe, and if you've ever done that before, you know that that can be risky. But what he does in the process is that he paves the way for connection and community for smalls who's on the outside looking in. you bring him, Benny? Because there's eight of us, and he makes nine. Yeah, yeah, so with my sister, but I didn't bring her. With nine guys, we got a whole team, yeah, yeah? No. With Ellswinder, we had a whole team. Ellswinder could catch and throw. Come on, Benny, man. He ain't hey, game. You saw the way through. Yeah. You already fill up all the empty positions since Ellswinder moved to Arizona. Right, and now I get to rotate eight positions instead of seven. I need the practice, guys. You're the best on the team, You no. don't need any practice. No, you don't. You're the best, man. Come on, Benny, man. The kid is a L7 Weenie. Yeah, yeah. Oscar Meyer, even. Foot long. Dodger dog. A Weenie. <laughs> <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> 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 Laughing at Yeah, yeah. You run like a duck. Kiki, but I'm... I'm... Part of the game, right? Mm, yeah. Now, how come he don't get to be? Because he's a geek, man. He can't geek. catch. Man, base up, you blockhead. Come on, play, man. He's never gonna catch the ball anyway. Let's just play. What a jerk. It's hey, Smalls, throw it second. Okay, We told you, Benny. We told you. What is he doing? I don't believe this. Here, sorry, sorry. Throw it, you know. No. I can't. I don't know how. Thanks for taking me here. But I think I better go. Hey, hey. you think too much. You ever have a paper out? I helped a guy once. Okay. Well, tuck it like you would throw a paper. When your arm gets here... Just let go. Just let go. It's that easy. How do I catch it? Just stand there and stick your glove out in the air. I'll take care of it. I love that. I'll take care of it. You ever have anybody do that for you? Open a door. Invite you in. Pave the way. Take a risk just for You. It's amazing. And you might say, oh, that's, yeah, it's that's a cute movie. You know, it's just the playground. It's just the neighborhood. It's just, a, you know, a, a youth a baseball team. But we know better than that, don't we? We know, no matter what age or stage we're in, that for the person that's on the outside looking in, the person that's hurting, it's never just the neighborhood or just the playground or just the team. Oh, it's, It's personal. It's personal. Ah, I wish I I could be more like Benny in my life. And when we we do that, when, when, when we see through somebody else's eyes, somebody that we're different than, somebody that we maybe can't relate to, we start to change lives for others and for ourselves. Maybe you can use a Benny these days. I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe you're going through some stuff these days and the, the tunnel has gotten dark and you're not sure how you're going to get out and you're kind of caught in this muck and life is unpredictable and you find yourself in the midst of chaos and you're wondering, what do I do when my world is in chaos? And that's the question that we started to wrestle with last week and we saw two characters in our story head for home and hopefully a new future. And so if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to Ruth chapter 1. And if you weren't here last week, we have, these, uh, we, we have these characters. And they ended up traveling from one land to the other. Naomi and her husband and her two boys. And they leave because people are starving. And they go on this dangerous journey to a dangerous destination. It was the land of Moab. It was the belly of the Beast. It was their enemies. Why would you ever end up there? And that's where they end up and things go from bad to worse because her husband dies and her two boys die and she's left without hope. And then she hears that God is providing for his people back in Israel. And so she and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, start the trek back and they roll into town. And Ruth is there with Naomi and Naomi shows up and everybody starts talking about it. And Naomi, whose name means pleasantness, says to all of her friends, don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara because I am bitter. And we left the story there. We left, you know, we left the story with some tension and and, and we kind of left it hanging a little bit. But I didn't include the very last verse of chapter one because in the last verse, there's this echo of hope and so look down at the very last verse of chapter 1 it says naomi returned to, from moab accompanied by ruth the moabite her daughter-in-law arriving in bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning hope if you are a widow or you are an orphan or you are an immigrant, or you are extremely poor, this was the perfect time to end up in this country, in this city. I mean, your timing couldn't have been better. It's the beginning of the harvest season, which would last for about two months, the barley and the wheat season, May and June at that time. And if you Are a widow, and if you are poor, and if you are an orphan, and if you are an immigrant, there are ethics, there are laws written into ancient Israelites' handbook that says you have to be generous. This is the way that life works. This is what I want from you, God says. And so when they harvested their field, they would leave some behind. When they harvested their grapevines, they would leave some behind. When they harvested their olive trees or whatever it was, they were told to leave some behind. And so if you are hurting and in the margins, this is the place that you want to be right here, right now. Impeccable, impeccable timing. And this is where we pick up the story right at the beginning of Ruth chapter 2. Look down at verse 1. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing. And so this guy was uh, prominent in the community. He was probably wealthy. Uh, He probably had influence and he probably had power in this community. He was from the clan of Elimelech. We've heard that name before. That was Naomi's husband's name and his name was Boaz and Ruth the Moabite. And so we have to pause here because how many times are we going to hear that Ruth was a Moabite from Moab and she was a Moabite and she came to Bethlehem, but she was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. She wasn't from, she's, she's from our enemies, over and over and over again. If you read the whole book of Ruth, you see it. It's like the author of the story is just throwing it in our faces over and over again. And if you are an ancient reader and you know that the Moabites were the evil enemies, and you know that they were the outsiders, and you know that God could never bless a Moabite because they were wrong and we are right, you have to start to pick up that the author of this story is being a bit subversive and not just actually not a bit subversive he's being really subversive he's he's blowing up categories he's blowing up boxes he's blowing up presuppositions do you know what a presupposition is it's something that you presuppose before you ever get to a conversation or to the text it's something, our, pre, our presuppositions, they're like these fixed lenses that we put on our eyes, and, and oftentimes we don't even know that they're there. We can become aware of them, and we usually become aware of them when somebody is subversive with us, or when we're shocked, or when we're in pain, and we start to ask, what is going on? Why is this happening? And our world starts to spin a little bit, and our Boxes get blowing up. When you read the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets, they're not nice. If you're an ancient Israelite and you're getting letters like that, somebody's throwing it in your face. Jesus did this, too. You know, we we like to think of Jesus as this kind of nice guy. Jesus was extremely subversive. He told stories about outsiders who were actually much more noble than the insiders, the ones in control of the society and the culture. He told stories about good Samaritans. Are you kidding me? I mean, if anybody was to be despised in that day, it was a Samaritan, And he tells this story, and the Samaritan is the hero of the story, and the Levite, who was a worship leader, and the priest, who was a pastor in that day, they're the bad guys in the story, and Jesus tells this right to their faces. It's no wonder he gets put on a cross. Because when you face up to your own tribe, and you begin to break down presuppositions and boxes, all sorts of things can happen. So when we hear... Again and again and again, Moabite, 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 Moabite. The author is trying to break down the presuppositions of his audience and, said, and, and he's trying to, to communicate something. I want you to think in a different way. I want you to open your minds a little bit. I want you to learn a little bit about the love of God. I want you to learn a little bit about what it means to love one another. And that's why so often the noble ones are outsiders, and not the insiders. Because we need to have something wake us up so often. The ancient re- readers would have picked up on this, and so they, they see this going on. And Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi... In verse two, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. So she knows about the laws, and she's going to go out, and she's going to she's going to do her best. It's a little risky. We'll see that in a minute. And Naomi says to her, "Go ahead, my daughter." And I have to ask the question: Why didn't Naomi go with her? And we don't really know the answer to this. I mean, two hands are better than one. They could have gathered a lot quicker. We see, if you read the whole story, that. Ruth works from, like, the beginning of the day all the way to the end of the day. I mean, this was not an easy job. It was physical labor. I was looking up some pictures of Ruth on the Internet, you know. I mean, we don't know what she looked like, but there's those cute Bible studies where they have this picture of this really clean, nice-looking girl out in the fields just, like, picking the grain. Like, it's just, and I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, this is back-breaking, brutal work. She just went on this journey from Moab all the way around the sea back into Bethlehem and she's walking out into this foreign territory and it's exhausting. Maybe Naomi, maybe she was too tired. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Naomi felt shame. Maybe she was sitting on her front porch with a black eye because in that culture at that time one of the world views that that they had was that if something bad happened to you it was god judging you and and if and if and if something bad's happening to you it's because you have bad character Bad things didn't happen to good people. I mean, this is the whole wrestling of the book of Job. If you, if you read that whole book, I mean, this is the big kind of theodicy of wrestling. Why do bad things happen? Evil things happen. We have a good God. And, and what did I do wrong? And why is this happening? Why me? Why now? So maybe Naomi didn't want to go out and be judged by everybody else. Maybe part of that lesson is that we ought to withhold that kind of thinking. But Naomi stays in. Verse 3 says about Ruth, So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And then it says, as it turned out. In Hebrew, as fate would have it. Or it just so happened right at this time that she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, Boaz... The writer repeats this twice in, two, in, in, in three verses. So, so he wants us to know that, that Boaz is a relative. And, and literally what he was, and we find this out later on in the chapter, is that he was a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. And I don't have time to fully go into that, but if you have the Bible app, I include a little paragraph on that. But basically a kinsman redeemer at that time was a male relative that could help you if your life had been devastated. So maybe you had to sell everything that you own just to survive, just to have food to survive. Or maybe you had to sell yourself into servitude or slavery just to survive. The kinsman redeemer had the power and had the responsibility, and we don't know how often this happened, but had the responsibility to go and purchase your stuff back and purchase, believe it or not, you back. And, and actually, in ancient Israel, whenever they heard Redeemer, they would think of this idea of a slave being purchased and given their freedom. And you know what the slave market was for them? It was Egypt. You remember that story? 430 years, they were slaves in Egypt, and God redeemed them. And so Boaz, Boaz is an important guy. It's a, it's a really big deal. And so we start to see these different things happening here, and there's this sense of convergence. And if you're in the audience, you start to elbow each other and go, oh, oh. That happened, and that happened, and that happened. I mean, it just so happened that they came home right at the beginning of the barley season, and it just so happened that Ruth wandered out with all the fields in Bethlehem, and she goes right into Boaz's field. And it just so happened that Boaz is a close relative. In fact, he's a kinsman redeemer. Imagine that, and it just so happens that he's wealthy, he's a man of standing, he's got prominence, he's got power. Maybe he can do something about this. It just so happened. And then if you read down in verse 4, It says, just then. Oh, impeccable timing. Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. And so if you're in the original audience and you're you're reading all of this coincidence, all of this convergence, all of this as fate would have it, you start to think, oh, maybe... Maybe God's behind the scenes. Maybe God is still alive. Maybe there is some faithfulness left. Wow, what is happening here? Is there hope? Yes, there is hope because all of this stuff is happening. Now, I have to acknowledge in the same breath, in the same sentence, we have to acknowledge that we don't always see God at work. And when wretched things happen in this world, we don't always have an answer. Yes, there's natural consequences for our actions. We, we get that. We learn that as we grow and mature and we see life in a clearer, through a clearer lens. But we don't always have the answer. We don't always know. They didn't always know. Remember, the original readers are reading this during probably the decline of the empire. And so life is chaotic. There's widespread oppression going on. There are evil kings coming and going, and people are being murdered. People are being slaughtered. And they just want something to hold on to. Have you abandoned us, God? And maybe that's how you feel these days. But we have something in common with the ancient Israelites. What they have, we have. And what we have, they had. And you know what it is? It's a story. It's a history. And they're being told their history. The writer of Ruth is saying God shows up even when you don't feel him, even when you don't see him. God is alive and well. And he's going to come through. He's going to come through. Because sometimes we just need to be reminded. We just need to be reminded. I've talked about this file I have in my office in the past. It's, uh, it's called the encouragement file. And I call it that because when I was a lad and just starting out in my vocation, I had an old mentor come to me. Actually, he wasn't that old. He's probably younger than I was now. Life goes really fast. But he came, he came alongside and he said, Sean, man, there's going to be dark days in the future. It's, life has its challenges. All vocations have their challenges. And you're going you're to face uh, you know, these things that are, that, that are tough. And he says, what I want you to do is whenever anybody writes you an encouraging note, an encouraging letter, an encouraging email, I want you to take that and put it into this file. And I call my file the encouragement file. And so he had this big file called his encouragement file. And I thought, that's a great thing to do. Why don't I just do that? And so I've done it for 25 or so years. And I was, as I was writing this message, and I was thinking about this idea of remembering your story, I go, hey, let's give this a try. And so I pulled out the drawer, and I pulled out a few notes, and I found this one. And it's from my friend Deb. Deb Sawatsky. Her twin daughters came through my youth ministry in Colorado. They're 30 now, which makes me feel older than I used to feel, because I am. But I, I, won't read you, I won't read you the whole thing. She was an awesome leader. She was a friend. And she wrote me this note, and she was encouraging me. And in the note, she included a verse from the Bible. And she said that she had uh, written my name next to that verse in the Bible. And I don't know when she did it. I don't know if we were having a conversation. I don't know if uh, I was teaching. I don't know if it was like a Bible study situation. And on the other side of the verse, she had written another name, and it was Nelson Mandela's name. And so whenever you, like, are sharing a verse with with that guy, it's like, oh, man, that's pretty encouraging. And I don't remember the circumstances why, but I read the verse, and I want to share it with you. It's from Hebrews 10, 39, and it says, But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. You ever feel like that? You just want to circle the wagons. You're done. You've given up. You want to build a little wall around yourself. You don't want to let anybody in. It's just like, I've, I've had enough. The writer of Hebrews is reminding them, of their story we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed in other words have courage but to those who have faith and are saved and not like like saved in the one time sense and that that whole thing like the whole that's saved comes from salvation it's this idea of this ongoing change this ongoing transformation in our lives and then he goes on in the very next chapter and he just lists all of the heroes of the faith he tells them their story he reminds them of their history because sometimes we just need to be reminded is there anybody that you can come alongside and help them remember their story and you say, well, I, I know somebody, but they're not, they're not a person of faith. I mean, they're, they're not here today. They, they would never come into this room. And I... They're a part of the story. They have a story. It began at the very beginning when God created them with dignity and purpose out of a heart of love. Start there. I love you. I don't know why this is going on. I don't completely understand it, but I'm here. Is there anybody that you can help remember their story our story in Ruth chapter 2 goes on and 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 Boaz finds out what's been happening with Ruth and he's kind to her and in verse 8 if you look down in your scripture in verse 8 it says my daughter listen to me a term of endearment a term of safety my daughter listen to me Don't go glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, which gives us some clue into the reality of the danger that Ruth was facing. And whenever you are thirsty... Go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. There's this sense of humanity there. It's beautiful. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground and asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She knows who she is. She knows her station. Later on she'll say, You've set me at ease. I mean, I don't know the level of anxiety that she must have felt as she wandered out and had to choose somewhere to gather and glean, knowing that as a young woman, a foreigner in that culture, she could be attacked at any time. And probably most people, they wouldn't even care. If Boaz Boaz has to tell his own men, leave her alone, And she has this relief, and she just hangs her head, and she bows down. I can't believe you're noticing me. Why would you do that? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is extremely kind to her. He provides for her. Later on in this chapter, he will invite her to join him and his workers for a meal. She will go home with more than she showed up with. And at the end... Of the next chapter, the same same thing happens. May you be richly rewarded. You see, Ruth risked love, and it was transformational. It changed everything, because love is transformational. It changed Naomi's life. It changed her own life. In the next chapter and in the end of the book, it'll change Boaz's life. And Boaz, in his own way, at that time, in that culture, was also somebody in the margins. And we'll find out why next week. And not only that, and I don't want to give away too much at the end of the story, but you can read to the end by yourself. At the very end of the story, we realize that the love and the risk that Ruth took changed the entire nation of Israel. In fact, she's recorded in Matthew chapter 1. In the great genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, there's five women recorded, and all of them have phenomenal stories and Ruth is there among the heroes. Love is transformational. It's just it's just a better way. But it's risky. What are you willing to risk in your life these days to show love? Maybe some pride, maybe some dignity. Maybe you risk being misunderstood. Maybe you risk being rejected outright. He was despised and rejected. You see, Ruth is an example of Jesus. She's living out the life of Jesus. She's showing who God is, what he's like. And so when we read this story, one of the reasons it's so subversive is because we get caught up in all the characters and we start to see life through their lenses. We take off our presuppositions. And then when we least expect it, we see God, we see his character and his amazing love for each one of us. And we have the opportunity to respond even when your family member doesn't respond, even when your friend doesn't respond, even when the person in the workplace doesn't respond. So how could life change in your oikos with the people that you know in your situation if you risked love? When your life is in chaos, when the whole world around you is in chaos, Risk love. You see, last week we talked about the idea of find home. We find our home in God, but we don't stay there. It's not just us in God. It is us in God, but it's not just us in God. And he says, I'm going to send you out, and I'm going to ask you to take a risk, but I'm going to take the biggest risk. And because of that, I'm going to go to the cross for you. But in that moment of rejection and in that moment of weakness, I will display my power and everything will change. When your life is in chaos, risk love, and when we do, it changes everything. Smalls, throw second okay I told you so, man.